This episode is brought to you by Oberly Risk Strategies. Now, some of you likely know Oberly is the insurance brokerage and insurance diligence provider for the search fund community and has been trusted by search investors, lenders, searchers, and CEOs for over a decade now. The company is led by August Felker, himself a two-time successful searcher, both within the funded and self-funded models. He personally runs Oberly's dedicated search fund practice that works with searchers across the entire diligence, purchase, and post-close process. Their due diligence offering, which is 100% free of charge, by the way, will assess the pros and cons of your target company's insurance program and will summarize any potential coverage gaps, the pro forma insurance pricing, and the program structure changes needed for closing. At or shortly after closing, they will then execute on all of those findings on your behalf. In nine out of every 10 client engagements, they're able to either reduce spend or improve coverage, all in such a way that the searcher or CEO can focus on other things while Oberly handles all things insurance for them. Oberly has serviced over 900 customers across a decade of operation and has an NPS score that puts them at the top of their industry. But don't take my word for it. Click on the hyperlink located within the show notes or in today's episode description, and we will gladly put you in touch with as many happy Oberly customers as you'd like. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of In the Trenches. I am your host, Steve DeVitkos. Today, I am very excited and honestly quite humbled to be joined by Brent Belsberg, the founder and senior managing partner of Torquest Partners, a middle market private equity firm that he founded in 2002 that has since grown to $5.5 billion, that's with a B, in assets under management. Outside of his private equity business, Brent either currently serves as or has served as a director of the Sinai Health System, the University of Toronto Investment Advisory Committee, CIBC, ONY REIT, and the Four Seasons Hotels. In 2018, Brent was appointed as a member of the Order of Canada, which is Canada's highest civilian honor, for his work as a business leader and philanthropist. He also received Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee Medal in 2023 for his significant contributions to the country of Canada and to the province of Alberta. So, needless to say, his resume is only slightly more impressive than my own. I will conclude today with a brief and friendly reminder that I am an active investor in search funds and the companies that they acquire. So if you are raising a search fund yourself or have an equity gap on a transaction that you're working on currently, I'd love to speak with you. With that said, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation today with Brent Belsberg. Brent Belsberg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you here, and I have so many questions for you. I don't even know where to start, um, but um, I actually want to start at the very beginning. Um, and to contrast where you are now with where you were when you first started. So your most recent fund is upwards of $2 billion. And we'll get there. But what I want to know most about is that first fund in TorQuest, which I believe was in 2002. So can you can we start by just telling us a little bit about that first fund? You know, who was involved at the GP level? 
How big was it? What was the overall strategy thesis? How long did it take for you to deploy? And, and any other color you'd like to add for us on that first fund? So the truth is, um, the first fund was really a little public company uh, in 1993 called Harrison, raised $37 million. But the first uh, fund that we raised in the traditional TorQuest way was raised in 2001, uh, 2002. Uh, that was $183 million. And it, uh, in many ways, it was just uh, people that, uh, that I knew in Canada and Toronto who had seen the track record in our previous uh, public vehicle called, called Harrison and came in. And was it just you or was it, were you working with a partner at the time? So when I started, it was me and one young guy who had just come out of uh, uh, his accounting practice who had spent a year with me at Harrison. Uh, and it was just us when we raised the first dollars. But even before the first dollars were fully raised, uh, my partner, Eric Burke, joined me. Got it. Got it. And what was the overall, I mean, if, if there was an overall strategy or thesis for the fund, how would you characterize it? So historically, uh, I've been doing this since I was uh, 32 or three years old, where we were basically looking for people who had a shortage of capital and, uh, and, and needed some capital to be able to buy a business. And, uh, and that's how it started. And uh, pretty soon into, into Harrison days, uh, we began to realize that uh, our, our best transactions were those where we backed an entrepreneur who had an idea or where we, uh, or where we uh, 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 help people in transition in their lives. And, uh, and so that became our principal strategic direction. And was it all buyout based or was there some like growth equity component in that first fund as well? So there was no money that was traditionally growth equity as you would understand it today, but there were dollars historically that were used to go into a company for them to buy another company or, or for them to expand their business or their plant. So it did happen, uh, but most of it was buyout. How long did it take for you to deploy? And how did that compare to how long you thought it might take you to deploy at the beginning? So that's a great question. Uh, actually, uh, it was under three years, which is almost historically how it's always been for us. We've always raised historically less than we're able to raise. Uh, we haven't been driven by fees. We've been driven by by upside. And so uh, about three years after fund one. Now, after um, fundraising, or pardon me, I should say during fundraising, you know, a traditional private equity fund structure, as far as I'm aware, is a five-year investment period and a five-year harvest period, so to speak. My understanding is that it's actually quite rare for a GP to take all five years uh, that they are allotted. Why do you think that is? Well, because... Uh... It depends on markets. In our second fund, we took longer than five years and, and had to ask for an extension. Um, so in your history at your age, Steve, uh, you, you won't see many that that happens because the market has been such that opportunities have been so available and just being there, you can make a lot of money. So people have deployed quickly in an attempt to get bigger and bigger funds. In today's world, 
probably less likely. And what about fund two? I mean, was raising a second fund always a given for you and Eric? Was it the plan from day one? Or was it basically contingent upon what ended up happening with fund one? So, so uh, we had no idea when we raised fund one. We just knew that uh, my historical uh, investment philosophy, which had been in a little public company, didn't work. It was too small. Nobody was really interested in the stock of a small public company without consistent earnings. And so we needed to do it in a traditional structure. When we did that, uh, 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 we had no view of what, the future would be. All we knew was that uh, this was a good idea. Uh, we were very successful in fund one. Our returns were ridiculous. Very few transactions, five, and very high returns. And so we got calls from the uh, placement community quickly. And uh, and we hired Credit Suisse out of, out of New York. And literally in a, a matter of months, uh, we had commitments for two to three times what we were willing to take. And, and they weren't really happy with us because they were making fees based on the amount they could raise. And we were taking less than half of what they could actually raise. That's super interesting. I didn't know that. What Can you walk us through the decision of how and why you decided to take far less than you could have taken? Because, you know, the, the stereotypical fund manager, you know, uh, I guess there's a structural or monetary incentive for them to raise the biggest fund possible. How did you guys come to that decision? In fact, I think we still took too much money because we moved from being a, a you know a few guys doing a few transactions to being a very formal fund mandate with lots of people and and uh, and we thought that what we should do is compete with everybody else who looked just like us. And that was a mistake for us. And we did pretty badly on the first couple of deals we raised in fund two. Uh, and we learned a lot of mistake, a lot of, a, a lot of lessons from our mistake. Uh, but we knew that we couldn't manage more than that. We were very young to the business. The team was very new, two to three years in existence. And uh, people underestimate how important culture is and how important working together and experiences. Now you mentioned that your best or deployment period, I should say for fund one was under three years. So am I safe in assuming that you raised fund two before you had any realizations in fund one? And if so, did that present you with any, any challenges from the fundraising perspective in fund two? So I think that's fair. I can't remember exactly. But no, it didn't, uh, because you could see the earnings trajectory of every one of those businesses, which you know, had been entrepreneurs, businesses that had not been as sophisticated as you might have thought they might have been, which gave us our reason for existence. And, uh, and so um, we had no problem at all raising fund two. It, 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 interesting. It was very interesting. So you mentioned a few mistakes, and that's where I'd like to go next. Um, I recognize that this is a big question, but if you were to kind of zoom out and evaluate your first two funds, let's say, some of the most memorable mistakes. So these could be mistake, you know, your biggest mistakes that maybe cost you the most money, where you learn the biggest lessons. Um, so could you just walk us through some of those mistakes and maybe the lessons that you extracted from them? 
So, so first of all, uh, I would say that there's a formula for private equity that everybody everybody thinks is the typical formula, which is pay the most you can at an auction to make sure that you win the transaction and finance it as aggressively as you're allowed to do. And so the uh, first transaction that we did in fund two wasn't that different. We were so excited that we'd won the bid. What we should have known is that we paid more than anyone else. What we were also excited about was that we were able to do it during the process, which should have meant that we didn't have the appropriate amount of time to do the appropriate due diligence. And, and thirdly, uh, we, we backed a guy who was in the company who, who, who you know, didn't have exactly the same values as us. And so uh, then the second one, everyone was doing roll-ups at that time. So we, we, we uh, backed two guys in two different markets who had come together to try and give us the size that we needed in order to do a transaction that was a roll-up. Both of those, we did a terrible job of. We didn't have the experience and we didn't have the full understanding of what to do. And we'd done both transactions too quickly. So mm -hmm. we, we stopped. And the times didn't help either. And I, I know one of your questions is, uh, how important is the year that you raised it as opposed to the value you add? And, and, and it proved that we bought both of those at the top of the market uh, in 2006 or seven. And so we really stopped investing at, at that point and, and try to make something out of what we've done. And then we put in a lot of bids in, in 2008, nine and won nothing. Uh, and by 2010, we were open for business and every transaction we did in 2010 10 proved to be a gigantic success for us, gigantic. Partly from the lessons we learned out of the first two, but partly out of time. I wonder what the generalizable lessons that have stood the test of time you extracted from those. So is it, you know, don't move too quickly? Is it don't try to time the market? Is it roll-ups are a bad idea? Is it brokered processes are a bad idea? Like, are there any like kind of time-tested, uh, broadly applicable lessons that you learned then that you're still leaning on today? Yeah, well, you know, our, our average amount of due diligence on a transaction now is somewhere between six and eight months. Uh, mm. In addition, uh, uh, the amount of time we've known the uh, person we're backing or the guy whose business we're buying is is in excess of four or five years. So uh, that's our philosophy today. It isn't always the case, but it is what distinguishes us from most people in our business and which has given us our level of success. And, uh, and, and both of those lessons are, are fantastic for us. And, 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 and there are some sectors that we did the first time, one of them being retail. We've never done another retail transaction since because we're not good at it and because it doesn't meet our skill set. So there are things that we just don't do. And, and that's one of them. And, yeah. uh, and we don't do commodity businesses and we don't do things that are too heavily real estate oriented because we can't get the returns we want. 
So there are things that we just don't do, partly out of the learning that we learned at the beginning of fund two. And, and one of those is generally quick options. And the second one is, is, uh, is, is retail businesses. So we're going to talk about the vintage of a fund in a moment, but before we do, I want to, I, I want to ask you about the size of a fund and the link to the fund strategy. And I, I hope I can articulate this question in such a way that you understand what I'm asking. So as you, like, as any GP raises bigger and bigger funds, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying, you either do more deals of the same size or you start to do bigger deals, but you know, like the market for larger companies is more efficient, I would say, than the market for much smaller companies. So in my case, maybe this is a very selfish question. My fund's thesis is very much centered on investing in small companies below the radar of, of firms like yours. Um, and I think that that might limit the size of my next fund. Because again, if I start investing in bigger and bigger companies, I'll eventually start to violate the thesis that led to the formation of fund one in the first place. So I guess my question to you is like, have you ever encountered any similar tensions throughout your career between the size of the fund and the strategy driving the fund to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. It's the, the questions that we get asked during fundraising are, does your strategy change as you get bigger? And second of all, what's going to happen to you? Uh, so so those questions happen every every single time we fundraise. And, and um, so on the first question, which is what you've asked, um, we don't think our strategy has changed at all. Um, uh, you know, because we buy businesses generally from entrepreneurs and, and we keep those, those founders involved in the transactions for a very large extent, um, um, we still believe that we can see an appropriate amount of opportunities here uh, your question's an interesting one because the world's changed a lot, and and I don't I don't want to take a shot at you, but uh, when you started in this business, there were dozens of people in the search business, and now there are thousands of people, not funders, but thousands mm -hmm. of, of people participating in the search business, and you still believe you have a marketplace because of your particular expertise and because of the way you deal with things and those of us who believe in you believe the same. Mm -hmm. Same is true for us. We don't change our strategy. Yes, we do slightly larger transactions than we did before. We still think there's a, a market for the smaller ones, but it's interesting as the world turns uh, from just institutional investing to high net worth individual investing, there's lots of capital available for smaller deals as well. Multiples on those have gone up from four to seven or eight. The multiples on transactions that we're talking about have gone up from you know six or seven to eight or nine. So there's been growth in 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 pricing of 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 all levels of the marketplace, and and what we get uh, by going a little bit bigger is slightly more sophisticated management teams. Hmm. I mean, I I wonder. Um, you know, again, your your first fund in 2001, 2002 is 183 million. Your most recent fund is 2 billion. Obviously, there's a big difference between those two. You know, most GPs, I mean, if not all, at least those uh, uh, who I'm familiar with, you know, every subsequent fund gets bigger. 
I'm wondering, like, was there ever a moment where you considered like simply staying the same size from fund to fund? And if so, why did you elect to not pursue that strategy, recognizing that almost nobody does? But has that thought ever crossed your mind? For, for sure. Uh, we thought about it a hundred times and at every strategic meeting, we discuss it again. Um, the difficulty is um, it, it's gone from being a single purpose or a single person or a double person business to one that has 50 employees. And each of those people join you because they believe they have an opportunity and, and many of them will be better than you at, at what they've done. So you don't get the best people if you don't grow. So you need to grow for that reason. In addition, by being a little bit bigger, you have an opportunity of doing smart deals and middle-sized deals and bigger deals. So it makes your market a little bit bigger. But the main reason is uh, you, you can't keep your people happy if you don't grow uh, and you'll lose them. And, uh, and so you have to believe in them. So there was he and Eric, and now there are basically four or five pods of people in our organization today. So on a per pod basis, we're not that much bigger. <laughs> I see. I see. So I'm going to go a little bit out of order here because you, you've set me up for my next question quite well. As you've just articulated, you've expanded your firm over the years. And in so doing, you've had to distribute carry or basically the profit that you get off of investments that you make. You've had to distribute that among a greater number of people. At the beginning, it was just you and Eric. Now you mentioned you've got 50, 50 plus people. I'm wondering if you remember like the first instance in which you had to give somebody carry that otherwise would have been yours. And 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 to equate this to folks not running private equity businesses, you know, could be hiring a uh, experienced member of the leadership team and she's asking for equity. And a lot of founders are very, very hesitant to give that up. So I'm wondering, did you ever struggle with this decision of giving, you know, these types of economics? And, and if you did, if you could talk to that version of Brent right now, what would you say to him? So I never did. Um, when Eric joined me, uh, most of the fund was raised. And the first day he walked in, I offered him the share of the carry that he has today. Uh, so I, I never thought that there was an option other than to do that. Um, and 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 I know that uh, uh, someday uh, this place will belong to the next generation of people around here. So uh, it, it's the nature of the business uh, on Bay Street or Wall Street that that's what you do. That's how people get paid. There's never sufficient fees to pay people just out of base compensation and to maintain the quality of people that you have around here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, they won't stay if that's the case, and we have no turnover, uh, and I mean no turnover. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's why uh, 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 it's a necessity, and and why I never feel bad about it. My assumption always is that uh, my net worth is going to increase exponentially if I have the best people and if they're compensated appropriately. It can't be done if I do it all myself. Uh, you know, it's very different in, in operating business. It's not the culture of those things to necessarily share them. The number of businesses that we buy where there's equity owned by more than the founder is rare. 
And uh, it's very interesting because on every one of those, we have an option plan or, or, or a wet loan plan or both uh, long-term incentive plans on every single one we do. And it's probably the first time most of those people have actually owned real equity. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, and uh, uh, is it smart? Uh, you know, they, a lot of those people just don't understand it. And because of their, base compensation uh, uh, they would prefer short-term gains to long-term gains but that's our philosophy on how we have to keep people invested and working towards the long term in these businesses speaking of the growth of your firm um you have expanded your firm naturally and it's not just you making investment decisions anymore maybe in fund one it was or, or i guess suppose it was likely you and eric just making investment decisions but I suspect it's it's not just you and your sole discretion anymore as it might have been. And, and again, giving up this type of control is often a very, very difficult thing for founders to do. Like, how did you manage to do it? And how might you advise a young fund manager who is struggling with the idea of giving up that decision-making authority that she has become so accustomed to over the years? Yeah, so you, uh, you, you, you have to be brave on this topic because if you don't, uh, you won't get people who are empowered. It's very difficult to control every operating decision and 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 expect people to take responsibility and have authority. Uh, we we have a system on, on our investment committee where there are seven people. Uh, each one of them could veto a transaction, but it's never, ever happened in 22 years. What happens is that the transactions get developed over the time that uh, we're looking at them. They come back to Monday morning meetings. If somebody doesn't like the industry, doesn't like it, they send the guys back or the women back to, to, to make a different decision, to look at it again, to look at things again. And, and it's worked perfectly. It, what's evident is the returns have been okay and, and we've never had to use the veto. And um, uh, and so I, I don't, you know, it's that's that's a place where 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 you have to be humble, and you have to believe that other people around you are as smart or smarter than you are. If you don't do that, you shouldn't be in our business. And uh, and you know, yeah, there's risk associated with it. Uh, but if you don't take that risk, then you don't get people who feel responsible. And, and that would be the case, even if let's say that you have somebody who is, you know, more junior to you, who is really pushing to make an investment decision. And in your gut, you're saying, I, I really don't think this is the right thing. That would strike me as a really difficult decision because on one hand, you have experience and context and pattern recognition that might you know, be worth listening to. Certainly, I, I would presume that it is. But on the other hand, you don't want to kind of cut the legs out from underneath your your partners. I mean, those must be incredibly difficult decisions to navigate if your gut is telling you not to do it, but you perhaps you want that person to learn that lesson, him or herself. It happens every single day. So the benefit of age is you can use the Socratic method and send people back to try and prove things that are wrong. And, uh, 
and 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 you hope they come to the same conclusion as you do. And there's a level of respect for sure. So if they hear it coming from you, it makes them second guess it. If they're, I'll say it the opposite. If there's nobody in your place who desperately wants to do that transaction and believes in it, it'll never happen. Right. Somebody has to want to do this and has to believe in it. And it's generally not because, okay, well, I, I want to do it because that makes me a big boy or a big girl. Uh, it's generally because they truly believe that you are missing something and they aren't. And often they prove you wrong. Often. Mm -hmm. I want to stay on this topic of growth because presumably when you started, the actual investment decision-making process, I, I suspect was quite informal, quite organic. Maybe it was just you, maybe it was just you and Eric. And as your firm has grown and as, as any GP grows, the investment decision-making process understandably becomes more formalized. So it involves more people, more committees, more steps, et cetera. Um, that's a totally understandable um, consequence of growth. But what I want to ask you about is about the quality of decisions. So as a firm grows, all of the steps and committees, people, do those increase the quality of the decisions being made relative to when it was just you and Eric, you know, sitting over a beer making a decision? Well, actually, the returns on our first fund, which where it was Eric and I just sitting in a room making decisions, ended up being the best of all of our funds. Hmm. But that's a very small sample, and you can't draw conclusions from it. It's not possible to do that at this level. It doesn't allow you to grow, and it doesn't allow your investors to grow with you, and it doesn't allow your investors to get the benefit. There's no doubt that people who we start these businesses on their own, one person in a room or two people in a room, hate process. <laughs> it, it's, it's an anathema to them. Uh, they, they hate committees, they hate 60 page EOI memos and 60 page LOI memos and 60 page bring down memos. They hate spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on consultants, if not many millions of dollars on due diligence every single time when they think they have the answer before. Mm -hmm. You're a fiduciary and you have to do things in a way that a fiduciary does because you can't have tail risk. And if you miss something, you'll have a fraud. And if you miss something, you're responsible. So Going through these processes perhaps protects your downside. Does it increase your upside significantly? You try and get some plans out of these things which help you make decisions on how you run the business after you own it. But generally, people are more important determinant of success than, than the numbers. This episode is brought to you by Symphony, a global software design and product development firm with presence in the United States, Latin America, and Europe. Almost every SaaS CEO with whom I'm familiar will likely agree that the technical due diligence process is perhaps the most important work stream for any prospective software CEO to get right. 
This is especially true for those like me who would classify themselves as non-technical. Symphony not only performs technical due diligence engagements for search funds, private equity firms, and strategic acquirers, but they also work with companies to immediately begin executing on the problems and opportunities identified throughout the course of that process, as they do essentially everything related to product. This can include outsourcing your development entirely, augmenting your existing team, prototyping a new product, refreshing your UI, or professionalizing your QA operation, to name just a few. Symphony was co-founded by a Stanford GSB grad in 2007 and now has over 700 full-time development, product, and design resources across the globe, in addition to business and strategic resources from McKinsey, BCG, Google, and several private equity firms. For listeners of In the Trenches, Symphony is offering a full 15% off of any of their services, and that includes the technical due diligence engagements. Just go to the contact form on their website and tell them that you're a listener of the podcast. It's lastly worth noting that their team is fully staffed and ready to go, so if you have a technical due diligence or other product engagement that's time-sensitive, it's definitely worth checking them out at symphony.is. That's symphony.is. Let's talk a little bit about the business of private equity. Um, and, and we'll go back to the timing point that we alluded to a little bit earlier. Let's say if I were to just randomly select, I don't know, 100 middle market private equity funds that have been raised over the past 30 years or so. Roughly what portion of their returns do you think might be attributable to the skills and abilities of the GP? And what portion might be attributable to just the vintage of the fund or, or the year in which it was raised? So I can't give you a percentage of that. I know it would be a great question. And I'm sure there is some information on it. There, there's no doubt that if you do appropriate surveys and analysis, and that that funds raised in 2006 or seven or eight did better than funds raised in 2003 or four. Mm. Uh, there's no doubt about it. So it is a contributor, and that's why people are, are, are give you money based on your percentile, your quartile performance, which measures you against your peers. And there's lots of information on different vintages and what that the median is and, and what the top quartile performance is at each of those periods. And, and they're very different depending on, 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 on the time that the fund was raised. That doesn't take away from the fact that you have to have the best people and that you have to make good decisions. How do you think about timing the market, if at all, with respect to a new fund? Is that something you pay attention to or, or attempt to do in any way? On the margin, for sure you do. Uh, you, you know, uh, uh, it's very interesting that right now, uh, for the last six months, uh, there haven't been as many transactions, but prices have not reflect the fact that your cost of capital is way higher, that your interest rates are, are you know, 600, 700 basis points higher. Uh, prices have not reflected that, uh, nor have they reflected that, that you know, the you know, investment alternative for, for an institution should require a higher return on equity in these times than it does in, in, in times when interest rates are way lower or when volatility is less. So you, 
you delay, you hope to take advantage of, of, of some pain that other people are going through and, and you don't rush as quickly into the decisions because you believe you have time. Right. And, and for sure you play it, but I say on the margin, you know, the term of your, of your investors is, you know, five years with uh, realizations over five years after that, you can't just sit and do nothing for five years. <laughs> and so, you know, you're, they're giving you money. They're making a decision that you can invest it now and you have to invest it now. Right. If 40, if 40 year old, Brent Belsberg was magically transported into September of 2023 at that stage in your career, would he still start a middle market private equity firm and, and why or why not? Well, there's a whole bunch of new products today that, uh, that are taking um, uh, institutional investors money that didn't exist when I did it when I started. The secondary market is, is a big part of that debt funds are, are a big part of that, neither of which existed when I started. Uh, both of those are, are, are very interesting alternatives to what we've done. Uh, probably the secondary market is taking an increasing amount of, of, uh, of, of, of institutional money right now than you know, just traditional private equity money. But our expertise is in Canadian um, middle market. And so you can't go into things you're not as good at. Mm. And um, so you have to do what you're best at. And we're best at that. So the answer is yes, we would, we would go into the same thing because that's where we can create true, true outside returns. How about the source of your capital, which is to say your limited partners? Uh, what have you learned over the years about both selecting and managing and communicating with your limited partners? And how much should an emerging fund manager care about specifically where their money is coming from? Or should they think that capital is a commodity and your money is as green as the next person's? Well, you know, if you'd taken only European funds, uh, uh, European LPs uh, uh, 10 years ago, it would be very complicated for you to, to do your fund today because the regulatory environment changed around them or because the economic uh, environment in which they operated changed. Uh, lots of people are trying to take lots of Middle East money today because they believe that's where the opportunity is to raise significant amounts of money. We've had the luxury, and I say it's a luxury, of being able to balance our portfolio amongst all of those groups and Americans and Canadians and Europeans. And so we purposely try to not only have Canadians and move beyond Canada, so that if there ever was a change of view, uh, uh, we would have uh, investors from around the world. Uh, but, you know, these are limited partner structures. So the amount of involvement that your institutional investors is very different than what you do, Steve. And so, yes, they, they teach us uh, how things work. They're a great source of us reaching out and finding out how other GPs are doing. But they're very limited in their ability to, not because they're not capable, but in 
but because they have dozens and hundreds of funds that look like us of, 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 of getting seriously involved. They do get involved when we do some co-investment work where they co-underwrite with us on occasion, and, and that's valuable. We try and balance uh, the number of people who want co-investment from those who don't. So you, you, you do purposely try and find the investors that, that, that ensure that you have significant capital so you can do larger deals if you need extra money. Um, and, and, and we look for geographic diversification. We also look for diversification around foundations versus pension funds versus high net worth family offices uh, because uh, the factors in the economy that affect each of those are different. And so as a result, uh, we want to ensure that if those things change, we're still not left uh, out there by ourselves. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, given the theme of diversification, I suspect I know your answer to this next question, but I'll ask it anyways. If you were raising a you know a hypothetical $100 fund, would you rather have five LPs at $20 each or 20 LPs at Five dollars each. I mean, you 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 want diversification so you're not dependent, but you don't want too much diversification because you need, uh, because some of the best investors and the most loyal investors and the ones who are best recognized do very few funds and want to give you significant amounts of money. So we have some two hundred million dollar investors because because um, they are brand names and because they're really smart and really good people. And so um, uh, we, we love having them there. So it sounds like there's a delicate balance between um, not too concentrated on one hand, but not too diversified on the other. It sounds like they're both imperfect. So managing the pros and cons of each likely is a bit of an art in itself. It is for sure. I mean, it's a very complicated business in the sense that, you know, and maybe this is too much information, but you have to understand who your investor base is. You have to understand who your banking relationships are because that's a very, very big strategic differentiator for you. And the Canadian banks have built many of us and are, hugely responsible for our success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the investment decision-making process. Um, have you developed, I mean, you've had so many reps at this and, and I'm sure have um, learned so many lessons over the years. I'm curious if you developed any like generalizable rules or heuristics about investing that you now lean on when making investment opportunities. And it's kind of a vague question. So I'll give you two examples that I have um, you know, kind of gathered over the past couple of years. I recognize my my experience is not even in the same stratosphere as yours, but just to give you a sense as, as uh, uh, with respect to what I'm saying. So one of my rules is if I have to make a list of pros and cons, then the answer is no. Uh, and my other rule is if I have to make a decision more quickly than I'm comfortable making it, I just say. So do you have any like anything so, like that that you still lean on? The second one is a certainty for us. Uh, we're not set up to throw a bid into an auction with everybody else and fit into the time frame imposed by an investment banker 
what we find is most of those are artificial anyway, and we have a lot more time than we think. And mm -hmm. so we work our way through those. But the second one, we agree with you 100%. As far as the pros and cons, um, I, I think the first page in our, uh, uh, in, in every one of our investor memos should be uh, opportunities and risks. And, uh, and in analyzing the transaction against the risks, you, you know, our job is not to have no risk because if that was the case, we'd be buying government bonds. And even that uh, today might not be perfect and we'd be diversifying that. So we always know we have risks. And the question is, what's the tail risk and can we manage our way around risk? Most of our big mistakes are because we underestimated the tail risk and, and under, underestimated. So in one that we did, uh, we analyzed the regulatory environment around the business and, and it proved to be significantly worse than what we estimated it could be. In another one, um, that we made a mistake in. Uh, uh, we knew we had to spend a lot of capital on this business, which, which is the reason that the entrepreneur was selling it to us because he just didn't want to or couldn't make the capital investments. And we underestimated the complexity of that capital investment. So, you know, we, if we don't identify the risk at all, that would be terrible. But if we under, if we evaluate, if we, if we, if we saw the risk and we, and we underestimated the risk. That's okay because it's curable, and uh, in most cases, and 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 at least we we saw the issues that that, that existed. You know, people to us are, are are way more important than they are to the average uh, private equity fund. We can uh, we either reach into our bevy and have someone we're going to back to do this transaction, or we don't or we are backing the existing management or we're not. And, uh, and when people underestimate that, they always make a mistake. And, and so I always say uh, a great business with the wrong person can screw up a, an average business with a great person. It'll always, it'll, it'll do well. And, and so, uh, um, you know, the difficulty with today's generation is that is they believe everything can go into a model. But the EQ is the thing that distinguishes us from a lot of people in our, our field. And we think it's extremely important to our investment decisions. So when making investment decisions over the years, I'm curious, what has been the greater source of mistakes for you? And when I say mistakes, maybe we can call that doing an investment that you probably shouldn't have done, or maybe not doing an investment that you should have done. So what's been the greater source of mistakes, overthinking it or underthinking it? That's a hard one. You know, it's very hard to grow your business and do everything on gut. Yeah. And, uh, so uh, initially we could do lots of stuff on gut. Uh, it's a lot harder to do it today because you're trying to convince uh, seven of your partners that at the investment committee or long before that, that your gut is sufficient. So, you know, we overanalyze everything <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but it is the nature of, of being a fiduciary and, um, uh, you 
got to make sure that in the end, the person really looks at his, uh, into his heart or her heart and, and says, I, I really believe in this one. So yeah, you have to have some gut or it just doesn't work. Move on to hiring. I'm, you know, a combination of you and your team have likely evaluated and hired a large number and a wide range of CEOs for your portfolio companies. Um, I want to learn a bit more about the broad generalizable lessons that you've learned related to experienced CEOs running your portfolio companies versus first-time CEOs running your portfolio companies. How do you think about that? How much weight do you put on experience? And are there any industries or business model that maybe lend itself to one type of leader, but not the other? So because we have a relatively short hold period of things we do, three to five years, where we know what value we bring and we leave room on the table for the subsequent buyer to create value for them as well. We have historically hired experienced people in the field that the company is in. Mm. And it has generally stood us in good, in good stead. The interesting thing is we decided to take a risk on a first time CEO who came out of our business and it's been a gigantic success for us. Mm. So we were learning even at our stage on this topic. And, um, and I don't want to generalize from one experience, but it's proved to be excellent for us. <laughs> Do you think that, I mean, again, we're, we're, we're talking with a single data point here, but as best as you can tell, is it the person, him or herself, that's just an absolute superstar? Or is there something about the day-to-day -day nature of that particular business or that particular industry or that particular company that might lend itself uh, more suitably to being run by a first-time CEO? So it's an amazing question and a, and a perfect question. The business had fantastic operating people. It was owned by a family who weren't willing to stay. So they had always had a boss, but on a day-to-day -day basis, they could do a great job. The business was a bit of a roll up done five little acquisitions into it for sure the management team couldn't have done that and this young man could do that and he's done a great job of it so a lot depends on the nature of the business that mm -hmm. is for sure let's talk about private equity playbooks and and I'll, I'll try to define that for folks who don't necessarily know what I'm talking about. So there are some private equity firms that are somewhat notorious for executing on a very prescriptive playbook after they acquire companies. So, you know, financial or operational changes that they um, execute on pretty shortly after they acquire. So Vista in the software space, Riverside, Constellation Software, you know, these are three firms who are pretty notorious for their playbooks. 
I'm I'm curious. Um, does TorQuest have a playbook, whether it's a formal one or an informal one that you tend to execute on? And if so, what are some of the more common changes or additions within that that playbook, quote unquote? For sure we do, because we tend to buy businesses from entrepreneurs in transition. So the uh, first thing we do is 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 uh, uh, make sure we have a 100-day plan, generally not something that the entrepreneur has, has had. Uh, uh, second of all, um, he's usually not spent enough money on systems. ERP, et cetera. So we generally have to spend that on almost every business we've done. Data analytics is something that he or she generally has not done a lot of because they've relied on gut and, and we can't. So we do a, a lot of that as well. Um, we help educate them on the M&A platform for that business, uh, which is generally something they haven't done before because uh, they tend to always grow organically. We always put uh, a board of directors in place that has mostly outside directors from the industry. And that's turned out to be very successful for us historically. It, it gives a, a, a third party look at, uh, at our transactions and allows us to learn from them as well. So that's just some of it. Uh, we do lots more than that, but, uh, but we do those things almost every time. I'm curious to know about your experience with these 100-day plans, because in my world, what is most frequent is that 100-day plans are written during due diligence when the entrepreneur is outside of the business. And I often kind of joke that you'll learn more about your business in the first month running it than you will have learned in the 12 months of due diligence that preceded it. So when people ask me about a hundred day plan, admittedly, this is in a different context than yours. You know, I use that line from Mike Tyson where he says, every boxer has a plan till he gets punched in the face, which is to say that a lot of hundred day plans kind of end up in the garbage on day two. I'm so curious, what is your experience with hundred day plans? How often do you actually execute on them versus, you know, versus not executing on them for any number of reasons? So I didn't say that we put in place the same plan that we have during due diligence. We learn a lot during due diligence. And in the first month that we own the business, we sit with the guy who's running the business or the woman who's running the business. And we, we sit with the new board of directors and we amend everything that we thought made sense and set priorities against them with the management team. Sometimes those changes take years. Sometimes they're thrown in the garbage and they never made any sense whatsoever. We now have a team of three value-added people who educate themselves on the learnings that we have in our due diligence and discuss those and give copies of all those reports to the management team once we close the transaction. And then between the value-added people, the management team, and our deal guys, we come up with a new 100-day plan that's not always even similar or the same as the one that we came up during during our due diligence. Now, every 100-day plan is going to be different across companies, of course. Um, but if you were to zoom out, what role does pricing of the product or service play in that 100-day plan? And the reason why I ask that question is because 
in my very limited experience, both as a CEO, as an investor, I've noticed that pricing is a lever that is often pulled um, quite early. It's a low friction, high margin way to make a change. And it pricing is, is a discipline that often isn't done terribly well, speaking very, very broadly. I, I'm curious, if you were to zoom out, what role does pricing tend to play in your in your 100-day plans or your value creation plans more broadly? So often, the you know, it's very difficult to answer in recent days because everyone's increasing pricing due to inflation. It's really more interesting is how much margin expansion there is in the businesses afterwards, of which pricing is a part of it. Um, you know, we're good listeners. And obviously, uh, the people, if they stay there, who ran the business before, uh, have their own um, uh, preconceived ideas about how much uh, pricing power you have in your transaction. Uh, our value-added people spend a lot of time on that, trying to provide data to give confidence to new CEOs that they can, in fact, exercise that lever. Uh, it's worked sometimes, and uh, you know, in some of our companies, we're seeing gigantic growth in that. Uh, in these times, when you see volume slow down, you never really know if it's because of pricing, or you've lost market share, or 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 you overdid it. So it's going to be interesting to watch over the next little while how much effect that has. And speaking of unanticipated things happening, I mean, in my little corner of the universe where we're buying very, very small companies from their founders who often have been running them for 20 or 30 years, you know, the investment base case by the entrepreneur buying the business, of course, shows margins in the first year acquisition going up by like 100 or 200 basis points. But what actually happens in almost all instances is they realize that the business has underinvested in tools and software and system and people and infrastructure and they have to make those investments. So more often than not, the margins go down in the first year because they're making the investments that are ultimately going to pay off in years three, four, and five. What has your experience been with respect to having to make those like infrastructure type investments early on and what that does to margins in the first year post-close? That's that's true 100% of the time in our businesses. <laughs> 100% of the time, we tell our investors we're going to have a J curve. In fact, if we paid seven times EBITDA for a business, we tell people we paid eight or nine because of the amount of investment we need to make to ensure that uh, um, that that we can achieve the strategic plans that we put in place. The interesting part is that for the last 20 years, there's been nothing but growth. So every investment you make looks good because the world has gone in one direction. Uh, over the last year or so, it's interesting, and it'll be very interesting to see what the effects of all that expenditure, of uh, those expenditures are when you have a market where unit volume, as opposed to gross sales, are, are going down as opposed to up. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about pursuing inorganic growth strategies. Um, naturally through acquiring smaller firms. You mentioned in your first fund, I think it was maybe your second fund, you attempted a roll up, but it didn't really work out. Um, and I know since then you've pursued um, some inorganic growth across um, your more recent funds. Again, if you were to zoom out um, across all of your funds, what are some of the more generalizable lessons that you've learned over the years about both the merits and the risks of pursuing a primarily M&A based growth strategy? 
So the only way it really works if you are a true strategic buyer and the only way it really works is if uh, is if you have strong management in your first acquisition or near the beginning of your of your of your plan if you think that one dental clinic added to a second dental clinic added to the third dental clinic is worth twice the multiples. That has been the history over the last uh, 10 years and we don't believe it. So have we missed a whole bunch of opportunities? Yeah, we've missed a whole bunch of opportunities and we've given them to others. We we gave uh, another fund in Canada uh, a veterinary roll up. We gave another fund in Canada a dental roll up. Uh, where the strategy really is that uh, if you buy these things at four and five times and you put enough of them together, they're worth 12 to 15 times. Uh, you know, maybe that's true, but it's, uh, there's a lot of operational stuff that needs to be done to be able to achieve it. And we historically haven't felt like we have the ability to do that. So we have not pursued that. What we have pursued is more major acquisitions of a true strategic nature where we have a product that is uh, selling well in Ontario and that if we had uh, an Alberta base and a BC base, we could win national customers. And, and that has worked for us way better. Mm -hmm. But only where we have uh, a strong management in the first place. The mistake we made was we did more of the latter where we put a bunch of people together really where there was almost no synergies and and, uh, and that uh, and that was a problem. Uh, everyone claims that there are lots of synergies. Usually those are uh, uh, you know financial reporting, uh, centralized buying, things like that. They almost never happen. Hmm. Your emphasis on day-to-day -day management and execution is, um, you know, reminds me of something that a, a friend and mentor of mine said. He was a CEO that that uh, pursued a, an inorganic growth strategy, and he said um, they should be called integrations, not acquisitions, because everyone is so focused on like the, um, you know, the the glittery acquisition. But at the end of the day, he said, you should only do a roll-up strategy if you like merging payroll systems and consolidating banking relationships and figuring out what CRM system to use. I thought that 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 line has stuck with me for a long time. He 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 or she is so right. Um, yeah, but when uh, getting more and more size means that you're tripling your multiple on ac on exit very hard to concentrate on the things that really matter. Yeah. So strategically, I was going through TorQuest website, even though I'm, I'm familiar with you guys, I wanted to kind of refresh my knowledge. And I noticed that your portfolio doesn't contain many um, software or technology investments. And I'm wondering if you can explain why. Is this a deliberate decision? Has it just kind of worked out that way? And is it becoming harder given that software and technology companies are now representing a greater and greater percentage of North American GDP? So, so <laughs> we haven't done any healthcare transactions to speak of either. Uh, we don't do a lot of resource transactions either. Um, 
there, there are a whole bunch of sectors that we just don't have the expertise on. We met a guy uh, last week who was a software guy and, uh, and we, we would have hired him and, uh, um, and put him in our shop uh, to do software uh, uh, acquisitions. Technology generally is very different. Uh, the principles around buying it and the principles around growth and the size of the transactions are very different than what we've historically done. Takes a very different talent pool. Mm -hmm. Much of it comes from, from uh, knowing who the funders are and, and being able to do subsequent rounds at higher and higher prices. And, and working in minority positions, none of which we're comfortable with, right. uh, nor do we have the expertise in, in any of those areas. And there's been so much capital provided to those spaces that the opportunity to buy things that need some work, even though Constellation, that was their original thesis, uh, has tended not to exist for the last five years. And, and so maybe it will exist again, and maybe now is the time to, to actually look at some of those spaces, uh, but we would only do it if we had the right person in our shop with the experience in that space. What role does valuation play in that decision? Uh, because I, I have to imagine that someone or a firm who is used to paying, let's say mid single digit EBITDA multiples, it might just feel flat out wrong to pay mid single digit revenue multiples, even though you know you can intellectually explain why a software company is more um, is 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 more deserving of a revenue multiple than a widget company would be of an EBITDA multiple. I'm just curious, like what role does valuation play, if any, in your decision making process to uh, be lighter touch on software and technology investments? So again, it's an amazing uh, question and. Uh person we were talking to didn't believe we would be able to make that transition from paying mid, mid to high uh, single-digit uh, uh, EBITDA multiples to the same numbers on the revenue side. And, and, he, and I think he'll end up going to a place that only does that part of the business. Mm. He, he, he might be right. I think he would have had more independence here and be happier here, uh, but, uh, um, uh, you know, the truth is because of the things we talked about earlier, which were J curves and the amount of money you spend on transactions once you own them, if they're not that sophisticated and, and the amount of money you spend on M&A, you really are buying a platform in a lot of cases to do a lot of things to. So even though on its face, it looks silly uh, and looks hugely different, it isn't actually that different when you cut beneath it. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even though I'm a software entrepreneur uh, and software investor myself, I still have a hard time paying a revenue multiple for something, whereas other parts of my portfolio, I'm paying a mid-single-digit EBITDA multiple. Again, it's explainable, but... Um, I don't know. I guess after years and years of training, something about it just feels very uncomfortable. What I always say is that the value of a business is the present value of future cash flows. 
and uh, um, the difficulty is the 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 predictability of cash flows in in, in our businesses appears to be a a, a lot clearer <laughs> than it does in a business where you have to continue to get revenue growth and you don't know when that's going to translate into cash flow. Exactly. And, and so we've we have struggled with it, and I think that young man probably knows that. So um, that might be a risk that that he shouldn't take, and and probably maybe we would never have got there with him. Brent, as we conclude here, uh, I'm going to end off with a bit of an odd question, but I'm so curious to hear your response. Um, so all of the following terms will describe you in some way. But I'm wondering which of the following do you think best describe best describes you? I should say so: founder, entrepreneur, investor, operator, or business builder. I know you're kind of all of them, but if you had to pick one that best describes you, which one feels right? So look, you know, our business has translated into asset management, right? And we do not see ourselves as an asset manager. We see ourselves as investors. And and uh, and sure, not every investor could have started something on their own and gone and 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 committed to a lease when they had no commitments and 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 picked a name and 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 hammered it on the wall. So we think we're founders and entrepreneurs, but the only way we have long-term success is being a good investor, and so. That's how we've at least transitioned to that, mm -hmm. and and, uh, and I think that's the only thing that will protect us for the long term. I mean, individually, I mean, like I said, you're all of those things, right? So, I'm wondering, as the builder of this business, of course, you know, you've been helped uh, by your team in, in in a very real way over the years, but as the founder. I mean, you are very much an operator. Uh, in this case, you're not running a widget business, you're running an investment business. Do you ever find a personal connection with the sellers that you're dealing with on hiring and firing and incentives and organizational design and culture, all of the stuff that you know business builders need to deal with? Do you ever find that you kind of use your shared experience with them as a source of personal connection? Because in my experience, like I, I often say, the only way to know how to be a CEO is to be one. Similarly, the only way to know what it's like to be a founder is to be one. Do you, do you ever find that that's like a, a a shared personal connection of sorts with the sellers that you're buying these businesses from? It's no wonder people invest with you, Steve, because your questions are better than anybody I've ever met. But, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it, it is it is my value added today to this firm and that in that I can sit with founders and and understand exactly what they're going through you know most of them have kids who could be in their business and generally aren't most of them have a a love for their business from because they've been there since there was nothing there until they have it where they are today uh most of them are having a hard time uh, uh giving up authority or control uh, you know, we do have lots in common with those. I do have lots in common with many of those people, and 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 uh, 
even though the write-ups often say the guy's in Florida or the woman's in Florida all the time and she's not really there on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. in her business. I never believe that. Yeah, me neither. And so uh, I always giggle that it's become the joke around here because they say ahead of time, I know what you're going to say. And, and I always say it at, at every investment committee meeting. So yes, that those are the people I feel most common with. And as I've told you, when I talk to my kids, I say, you want to be them <laughs> because yeah. it's them that you should honor. It's not one more person in Bay Street. Yeah. And, uh, and I've said that to you a lot of times too. Totally. So I truly believe it. And, uh, and so I say it's easy for me because this is my business. I am yeah. not just an investor, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, uh, you know, the talent skill that you have to have. Uh, you know, I, I could never be in a business where I sat behind a desk all day and ran models. I couldn't do it. And, yeah. and being close to people who who've actually built their business and understand how they did it and understand what risks they weren't willing to take. And maybe we could take those risks today for them and they could share in the upside with us. That's what we try and achieve around here. Mm-hmm. So um, I said that was going to be my last question. I promise this next one will be my last question because I know we're coming up on time here. Um, and I was reminded of this because we're talking about the things that only founders and only entrepreneurs can relate to. And the first thing that came to my mind when we were talking about that is this idea of kind of having your identity wrapped up in your business. So for me, this would manifest as a bad day at work became a bad day at home. And if I was experiencing challenges at work, inevitably bleed into my personal life. And I really never mastered the art of compartmentalization. And this is this is a reason why when a lot of people sell businesses, which I know you've seen this, they struggle, right? They, they feel like they've lost a part of themselves. They feel like they've lost a big part of their identity. As a founder and as an entrepreneur yourself, how have you thought about this? Because you know we're all going to exit from our business in one way, shape or form one day. How have you thought about what you know? What does Brent look and feel like? No longer with Torquest. It's what I think about a hundred percent of my day. <laughs> I wish I had the answer to it. I, I don't have the answer to it. Rationally, I know what has to happen for this place to have a future way beyond me. And rationally, I'm constantly looking for the person in my organization that's going to say if. You started with no brand. You now have a brand. You started with no people. You now have people. You started with no investor relations. You have investor relations. You started with no deal flow. You have no. You now have deal flow. If I could take all that, here's what this place could look like 20 years from now. And that's what you're waiting for. And if somebody does that, you, you, you'll move over quickly, which is what I've always done around here to that person. And, and, and so that would make it, that would make it easy. (laughs) And, um, and so you're hoping that amongst your organization, not in one person, but in, in, in all of them together, that you in fact have that. And, and I think we've done a great job in that. And, and there will be a time when, uh, when, you know, I don't want to be Warren Buffett, not that I ever would be, and I don't want to be Jimmy Passon, not that I ever could be. I, I want this place. I, I I want this place to 
to grow way beyond me and be way more successful a bunch of years after I'm gone. And so that today has become more important to me than, than what it will do to me personally if, if I'm not here. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brent, I, uh, I have to thank you for being so generous with your time and your insights today. I mean, you mentioned earlier the fact that TorQuest didn't have any turnover, which is ridiculous in the best possible way. Um, and it, it's no surprise to hear that given the leader that they have at the helm. So thank you uh, for your time and your insights today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Nice, nice to talk to you. And your brilliance and your questions is is unmatched. And uh, and by making me uncomfortable at moments, uh, you proved uh, exactly what you're so good at. So so thank you. Mm -hmm.